Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that completely lost its marbles but has since managed to buy some of them back on eBay. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show, Labour MP Stella Chris is with us to discuss parliamentary standards, declaring outside interests and, of course, the mid-beds blocker, Nadine Doris. Plus, rejoining the EU might be a long-term aspiration, but repairing a relationship with Europe and restoring our international reputation, they're urgent first steps. How do we get what we derailed back on the right track? Let's meet the panel. Matt Green used to do most of his comedy on Twitter, which I suppose now makes him an ex-comedian. <laughs> Hello, Matt. <laughs> How very dare you. <laughs> Matt, we finally have a tentative date for the first of the Trump trials. Are you looking forward to his finally getting the opportunity to clear his name and prove this has all been a huge witch hunt? I know, it's terrible, isn't it? I do feel like this is the first time in history a witch hunt has found an actual witch. <laughs> uh, and it's several, several different goes at it. Um, but also, uh, my favourite thing about that was that he immediately appealed, said he was going to appeal against the date of the trial, which is not something you can do. And it's just every time I, I sort of see Trump talking about the law, it feels like he's just watched one episode of Law and Order. <laughs> and he's just constantly shouting, objection at the screen. And, you get, and, and his lawyers are going, no, Mr. Mr. Trump, you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to do that. It's Just leave it to us. L.A. law at best, yes. I would say. Law and order is far too gritty. No, see, I, I, think, I think he's watched Dragon's Den. <laughs> the whole thing is a massive grift. And I say this as somebody who, for some bizarre reason, has found themselves on the Donald Trump mailing list. And I cannot try. I've tried, for the love of God, repeatedly to unsubscribe. I get four or five emails every single day from this thing. And it is just pumping merch at me. Like, you know, mugshot T-shirts, mugshot mugs. You do love mugs. it a little I, bit, right? The, the, the Donald Trump bit. wine glasses. I was <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I just thought it'd be a genius moment to bring them out, wouldn't they? Just put them on the table, see if anybody noticed. But the whole thing, as far as I can see, is just actually a selling opportunity. Yeah. Um, Marie Leconte is the author of Escape, the number one book for knowyourmeme.com users. Hello, Marie. Hello. Stop the Boats Week having been such a huge hit, the UK appears to have seamlessly segued into Stop the Planes Week. Is it actually this stuff that determines political fates? Can this sort of chaos just add to a general sense that this country is going to the dogs? Well, I do think so. So actually, as it happens, uh, my mother came to visit me uh, over the weekend and was meant to leave yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> and, we, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got a really good relationship with my mum. But I do have to say that when it looked like she might have to stay for a couple more days, I was like, no, nah, let's just really black fight. Let's go to the airport just in case it should be fine. <laughs> um, but no, and I think so actually what was quite interesting is, is that um, so on the phone when we chat, you know, I, I do tell her about the fact that everything is kind of broken in Britain and nothing really works anymore. Um, and yeah, and eventually actually after a couple of days here, she was like, actually, you know, I thought you were maybe exaggerating a bit, but. Everything is kind of badish, actually, and that that felt humiliating. She kept taking pictures of how dirty the tube was uh. and the streets were to send to the family in Morocco because she was like, "Oh, they're not going to believe me if I don't take picture evidence." So she just walked around taking pictures of filthy Britain to send back to Morocco. Um, but yes, yeah, so no, so I, I, I do think that is the sort of stuff that, even if in isolation, it's not a massive thing, it kind of contributes to that. You know, drip, drip, drip of everything again doesn't quite work. Everything's a bit grim. And uh, yeah, if you're the government, uh, that's probably not great. 
I have to say, towards the end of the Liz Trust tenure, I did get a text <laughs> from my sister in Greece, um, which I think she's been waiting to send 30 years, going, so you moved to the UK because the Greece was a fiscal basket case. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Um, returning to the show this week, you heard her already. She's chomping at the bit, I tell you. is Labour MP for Walthamstone, all-round campaigning hero, Stella Creasy. Hello, Stella. Hey, Alex. Um, Stella, having spent the last year being panned from all sides for allowing privatised utilities to pour effluent into our waterways, the government has now decided that the way to stimulate the UK housing market is to relax the rules about what companies are allowed to pump into waterways. Is this now desperation, resignation, incompetence or just out and out trolling? Yeah, I think I think I think, or all of you. I think I think at this point there's just somebody sitting in in Downing Street doing that silent scream face every <laughs> single day willing the year to end and just asking please please can somebody make it stop. Yes. Um but I would also say and say one of the proudest moments for me this year is that that lettuce that Beatles trust in office was from Walthamstone. <laughs> <laughs> I represent something that is more robust, (laughs) more likeable, and probably more likely to win the next election than the current government. And and less percentage water, I think. Probably covered in as much shit, though, as our (laughs) brothers and our Caesar, thanks to this government, yeah. To start this week, Nadine Dorries has resigned, we think, by firing a suspiciously Boris Johnson-shaped torpedo at Rishi Sunak. She has managed to confuse many of us in the process by saying pretty much everything we've been saying for the last year, that this is a zombie government devoid of mandate or ideas. Agreeing with Nadine Dorries is the sixth seal of the apocalypse. So good luck with the rapture if you're a Patreon backer, and sorry you never got to hear this if you're not. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak has been cleared of wrongdoing after failing to declare his wife's interest in a childcare agency that stood to benefit from a policy that would hugely benefit childcare agencies. You can see why they looked into it. This follows Nadim Zahawi being booted out after an investigation into his tax affairs, and more recently, Theresa Villiers, former Environment Secretary, was revealed to have earned more than £70,000 from Shell. Does our politics attract these people or does it produce them? And can anything dislodge voters' embedded impression that all politicians are just taking the mick? Stella. You Nadine Doris. You read out that list and I just feel like a massive underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done any of these things. I'll come to you. Um, no, what I absolutely loved about Nadine Doris was the, the pure psychodrama of not only her writing in the letter that... I didn't pick up when you tried to call me. Um, but also that she then didn't send the letter resigning to Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak. So at which point everyone mail. was like, um, does that mean you haven't actually formally resigned? Because there's this whole part, I mean, you know, if you ever got insomnia, go and read about the Chiltern Hundreds and the rules around Parliament that you can't actually resign. It's it's just a classic example of how otherworldly Parliament is and how it sets people up to think that they are special sausages, immune from normal rules, 
accountability, <laughs> any sense of propriety. It's about only these eighty-eight things. days after announcing she was stepping down with immediate effect. So I think you're being very unfair. She was <laughs> denied a peerage by sinister forces to which I think you belong. Um, <laughs> if only. <laughs> but on a more serious note, just how extraordinary is it that there is no mechanism for either Parliament, which is meant to be sovereign? Or constituents to sack an MP who just flounces off infinitely. It, look, it speaks to a wider challenge in, in Parliament in that like we don't have employment contracts. And I know this firsthand because that's why I was denied maternity leave and maternity provision because I, and I couldn't actually sue my employer like anybody else could. And the irony is, you know, we make these laws up, but we're like, no, no, we're not going to follow them, but you totally should. So, you know, employers, this government has made it easier for people to be sacked, um, but not in Parliament. You know, uh, maternity leave and maternity rights, a massive amount of discrimination and people losing their jobs and women losing their jobs especially since the pandemic, absolutely you have rights and rules. Obviously, you've made it harder for you to exercise them uh, in the, the tribunals by making it possible for people to get support to yeah, go to yeah. them. But, you know, those rules do exist. But in Parliament, they don't. Um, the only godsend I know is that Chris Bryant, who in fact has just written a book about it, and I'm not on the, on the books for his book, but like there are some people who do understand this stuff and therefore can help us when the seemingly incredulous moment where you're like, you thought Owen Patterson was bad <laughs> and, and Nadine Doris went, hold my pint. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it is yet another of those rules that make up our constitutional fabric that is revealed to be entirely based on the idea of people doing the right thing, being good chaps. Good, but we don't have a constitution. But we, <laughs> So with what can those rules be replaced? I don't well, mean practically. I know you're not. It's not your special no, 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 area no, of interest. No, 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 no. I hate. But I hate to be like a real nerd about this. Philosophically, what, no, I, what I don't do even want to be philosophical. Old-fashioned idea that maybe we should just have a bill of rights, and, and we should codify our constitution so that actually then people can be held. Account, I know it's never going to catch on. It's just, you know, the, <laughs> the levellers, the Tylers, all of that lot, you know, they, one terrible song in the 1990s and that was it. That's all these people offered us. But actually, a, a Bill of Rights setting out a constitution is probably something we do need in this country. And these examples, they're just minor compared to some of the bigger challenges within the the, the system that we mm, live in. Mm. But they reflect, as I say, we've had this government of good chaps and good chapesses and this government have just made a mockery of it to the extent, you're right, everyone thinks we're all on the take. I mean, like I say, I get people stopping me in the street almost kind of being disappointed that I'm, that, you know, I haven't done, I haven't, I haven't, yes. I haven't moved badges and goalposts. <laughs> I haven't I haven't got stables. Um, like you're doing it wrong, basically. I know, basically. <laughs> Why can't our MP be in this? It's like, this is insane, but it does mean I, I that people's what, willingness to take part in politics is I guess what is I waning. was asking, Stella, is that Making rules based on the idea that people's natural tendency is to cheat and be wicked, isn't that giving in to that notion that, that all politicians... Do, do you know yeah, what like I mean? Make, no, I, th I think it's the reverse. I think it's like making rules is about making sure that you don't have to be a special sausage to be somebody who could take part in it. I mean, the worst thing of all for me is people's idea that only 650 people in a place that looks like Hogwarts gone wrong is are the, are the important <laughs> people who can do anything in this country. It alienates, it disempowers people. And that kind of behaviour, people think, well, I don't want to be part of any mm, of that. Mm. Um, and I don't want to be part of that culture. Like, that's that's another barrier to people wanting to be part of it. So actually having a Bill of Rights, a Bill of Rights could be a really powerful thing. I mean, for God's sake, I know we're going to come on to Europe, but we're now dealing with people in Parliament who want to get rid of the European uh. Court of Human Rights. I mean, something that Churchill set up. I never thought I would be the one in Parliament defending, defending Churchill's Winston legacy. Churchill. Yeah. 
But rights are actually really empowering. So the fact that we don't base our constitution on them, that we don't even have a written constitution, I mean, that was the ultimate irony for me. I sat with the government lawyers being told why I couldn't have maternity cover, but ministers could, with them talking about it creating a constitutional nightmare. I was like, if you could point me to the constitution that it would be a nightmare for, Mm -hmm. that would be helpful. It's all madness. It is, you know, it is why it looks like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party and Alice in Wonderland. But the sad thing is, it's also used to exclude people who think, well, there must be some trick to it. Like the worst thing I think right now in our politics is people have watched far too much Netflix. So they they believe there must be a conspiracy, there must be organisations, rather than a lot of people trying to make a system that doesn't work anymore effective. And then those people who are shameless and brazen making uh, making a fool of all of us for being there in the first place to try and make it work. You know, I wish there was a plot. I wish there was a plan. <laughs> That's the most frightening thing of all about yes, Parliament. that would make it <laughs> like, more rational in yeah. a weird way. Uh, Labour wants to set up an ethics and integrity commission as an independent watchdog. We saw a lot of good people smeared during Johnson's tenure. Nothing seems to be a flimmed civil servants, judges, police commissioners, even parliamentary colleagues from his own party. So isn't setting up a commission still reliant on the good chap theory, still reliant on MPs not going out there and just undermining <laughs> just, it at every turn when they think I they're mean, going to get a funding very, against I, I them? Say, I am very much of my era, so yeah. I, I am nostalgic for the mid-1990s and it does feel like the kind of cash for questions, back to basics, corruption, yeah. that just sense of a government that's just rotten at the core. But I happen to think, look, I actually think there's a really important rule for it's not partisan. You know, all governments need checks and balances. The reasons why we stand up for the European Court of Human Rights is that it was set up to stop all citizens being attacked by overbearing governments. And those principles hold true as well. So actually, at their best ethics and proprieties committees, as long as it's clear and transparent who is elected onto them and there's accountability for that, that the, the who watches the watchkeeper it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing that it's become a point where people feel even more cynical. I mean, that's what breaks my heart is like people are much more likely to trust something they've seen on YouTube or TikTok now about what is really going on. And you're like, look, whatever filter you want to put on it, the messy reality is that we are trying to keep going a series of traditions that don't serve this country anymore, that actually are making things worse. Mm. And the longer we all keep playing along with this, the longer we all keep... It was almost like post-pandemic. There was a moment in the pandemic where people suddenly thought, we're going to do things differently. And then it was like all these MPs had kind of come back from, you know, and they were in the Club 1830 and they were like, no, (laughs) let's not deal with sexual harassment. Let's not deal with bad employment. Bring it all on. Let's be the worst people. Everyone, because at least then we'll seem interesting. It's like, like, no, all of this is eminently resolvable. It's a good thing to do. Actually, people should want to do it. The thing that kind of breaks your heart is that, Parliament is full of people who can find 101 reasons why not to do things. So, for example, we were going to have risk-based exclusion of people around things like sexual harassment, mm. which is quite quite a big deal. Again, in any other workplace, if you've got somebody accused, they tend not to be on the premises waiting out while the issue is being yeah. resolved. Not, not in Parliament. And that has been kicked into the long grass again. Now, everyone comes up with, well, you know, it's all complicated. Nothing is that complicated. And if we treat everything as complicated when it comes to Parliament, how on earth can we make law? Because again, law doesn't have to be that complicated. It needs to be stress tested. Things can be robust. But fundamentally, it's like we all talk ourselves out of dealing with the mess and the mess gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, the thing I have in my head is it's like a dung beetle. and You're kind of pushing pushing up and up and up. And Um, and only elections every four or five years may be an opportunity to 
to, and, and they don't tackle it. And the danger with that is, uh, as I always say, that, that by by the time the electorate looks at the dung heap, they don't know who deposited what. They just get the general whiff, whiff. Yeah. of um, shit. But I also would go further. Like, if we treat the public like children, we shouldn't be surprised when they're like toddlers and throw their toys out of their pram. And actually, there's something really worrying to me. If you look across Europe, the far right is on the rise. And some of that is a reaction against this sense that the elite is out of touch, it's corrupt, it's broken. You know, the the the, the diagnosis of the problem leads to that solution. Mm -hmm. So everybody who is a progressive who's sitting around kind of pontificating and, yeah, you know, Nadine... I, I, Good luck to her. You know, I just think you should bear nobody any ill. I mean, maybe one or two people I bear it will too. But, you know, it's like like as long as she's now gone and, you know, I'm really hopeful that Ali can win uh, in mid-beds and, you know, things can move on there. But actually be careful what you wish for in waiting for other people to resolve this. Because yeah. actually the reason why we got there, and I know we say we're going to get on to Brexit and all these things, like the reasons why progressive ideas are waning around the world is because a lot of people are sitting this out going, well, it just looks awful, doesn't it? Mm. Oh, somebody ought to do something about it. Actually, you know, Gramsci was right. The old is dead. The new has yet to be reborn. In the middle is monsters. We are living through serious monster territory. But if you think it can't get worse, like Trump is going to come back. Trump is not going. It's not just the merchandise. Like he's he is fueled by people's sense that something is fundamentally broken. And if progressives don't offer a serious, compelling, engaging alternative, like yeah. the far right will. Yeah, I, I, I recently um, interviewed Nelson Mandela's biographer, Rick Stengel. And uh, something he said to me that has stuck is that democracy is a vehicle with no engine. It needs shoulders to the wheel to yeah. move. Um, leaving it to someone else um, never works. Matt, we have seen a series of recent stings of MPs soliciting lobbying work, daily rates. I mean, it's also grotty. Other MPs not declaring really very relevant interests. What can MPs do to combat that sense that they're all at it in voters' minds? Because they're not, actually. Well, I, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I suppose the news will always focus on those who are. So I was thinking, is there a way that you... Because there, there'll always be reports about, you know, the people who, who make the most out of um, um, sort of donations and, uh, and second jobs. Could we flip that and have uh, an announcement of the people who make the least? But then I thought that will just sound sort of smug and pious yeah. and people say, well, I don't need anything. And so it, I think it is difficult. And I think the problem with it, the conflict of interest thing I find very interesting as well, because I think every time you read about that, when people say, you know, they declare a conflict of interest as though that is in some way resolving the conflict of interest. Absolutely. And every time I, I look at it, I just, it, it's so bizarre. It's like walking up to your partner and saying, just let you know, I've started an affair. Uh, and I've told you, you can't be upset about it. I know. And, and it feels very, yeah, I, I don't understand it, that. It's that one of the things that was most alien to me from really from the day I moved to this country, this, this notion of above board, mm. that by exposing something, you sort of defang it. But that's not the purpose. The purpose of declaring is to ensure there isn't conflict of interest. And I remember a case case of a health secretary not so many years ago that was taking donations to his private office from like a private healthcare film firm and was declaring them and it's like well I've declared them everything is fine it's but like it, it's not it's like Trump though isn't it because um uh, as Stella said, you know, Trump is is back, uh, is 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 on the way back, and is continuing to be back, and and he I think has absolutely proved that if you just say it out loud, people then don't think it's bad. 
Like his supporters don't think he can have committed crimes because he's told them that's what he's doing. And they just go, oh, well, he said that he was doing that. So that's fine. And you go, no, no, just because it's not secret doesn't mean it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Marie, Teresa Villiers, a good example. Her shares in Shell weren't initially known because MPs don't have to declare things below £70,000. Sunak's excuse for not declaring his wife's interest was essentially mega rich people don't know exactly what their investments are. Um, after the expenses scandal, why has the threshold been allowed to stay so high? 70 grand? I mean, the, the boring answer is that I looked into it earlier today and could not really find a definitive answer as to why it's exactly kind of that figure. But I think some more broadly, as far as I can tell, the problem is that all the kind of rule changes, especially in terms of MPs' behaviours, interests, etc., is always done reactively. So it's always a bad thing happens. Everyone panics and they go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And then decide to be like, oh, we'll change the rules to address this now because we fucked up. And it's really rarely the House saying, actually, we've looked at this in, in, in a time of quiet when actually nothing is really happening right now. And we've decided to be proactive about this and to change the rules because I think that would probably allow MPs uh, to have a proper think and decide what to do. So, yeah, so I think the problem, as far as I can tell, seems to be that a lot of the rules on anything that kind of happens in the House seems to be based on people going, fuck, we need to come up with something ideally quickly because the papers are very angry. Um, And yeah, I mean, you'll be shocked to hear that does not always result in very good policymaking. Labour and the Tories have been filling their ranks with prospective candidates for different reasons, I have to say. The Tories, because there's loads of people just fleeing, and and Labour, because suddenly they, they... of the prospect well, of needing we do also, quite like, a few more. And I say it's because it was like an awful... I mean, just it was emotionally extraordinary in 2019. Like a lot of my colleagues did lose mm. their seats. It really was a kind of horrible, shocking... So there are a lot of seats to fill. I mean, like... But so the, the question attached to that is, with politics being increasingly mm. volatile, you know, loads of people losing their seat in one election, loads of people losing it in the next, um, is there a danger that these big intakes, they're not properly tested in public life or vetted by parties or, you know, because there's suddenly a lot of shoes to fill. There's a way more scrutiny than there used to be, partly because you've got social media, people are much more aware. of the Actually, frankly, what I'm concerned about, and the reason I set up a project called Mother Ed, um, is that the people coming forward are still very, very similar. Um, You know, we're still not seeing equal numbers of men and women getting selected, let alone elected, because it's not just being selected, it's being selected in a seat that you're actually going to win. The diversity in terms of black and ethnic minority candidates still isn't where any I think would want it to be to reflect the country. Actually, frankly, if all we had to deal with was the Nadine Doris Owen Patterson, Nadine Zahawis of the world, that would be easy, understanding all those different barriers. So, you know, it starts the process a bit. How do you get selected by a political party to be a candidate? And starting there and thinking about who does the selection and what we ask of people to get selected. And one of the reasons I set up that project was that if you are, and it was particularly, there are very few mums of children of school age in parliament, and that's not by accident. It's because we make it impossible to do the job Mm. and be a good parent. Um, But one of the reasons that that also happens is that in being selected, you have to kind of 
go, you know, you go around on the circuit. You have to go meet people, show that you'd be a good candidate, show that you've got connections. So you to need people. support. Yeah, you need to go. You need to go and win the argument with people. Well, if you've got childcare commitments, that's a lot harder to do than, frankly, if you are a young mm. man who's super eager to go wherever and whenever. Um, so we set up this fund called Mothered to give women who were standing here kids a chunk of cash to stand for selection to even things out. And we've now got 12 out of the 55 that we funded selected. They are nothing like the existing. So in terms of the diversity of the candidates being single parents, having children with special educational needs, like the barriers to participation don't start in Parliament. They start out in the local political parties. They start in how we ask people to get in politics in the first place. I mean, I'm going to shamelessly promote. So I did a big piece on selections for the I newspaper a few weeks ago. Um, And so one of the things I find interesting is that for this round, a good thing is that there's plenty of time. So I think one of the issues with the 2017 and mostly 2019, let's be honest, Tory intake, is that there was no time and lots of people were selected, you know, in about three and a half days and a lot of them ended up being nutters. Obviously, very good thing that there's now plenty more time to actually pick candidates and vet them and put them to their paces, etc. But at the same time, so something I did find really interesting talking to kind of 2017, 2019 intake MPs is that a lot of them are from non-traditional uh, political backgrounds or are single parents, etc. And then they say, you know, I never would have been able to stand before. Like I could only stand because of a snap election. It was only a commitment for a couple of weeks, like for a few weeks, and that was fine. I never could have been the sort of candidates we have for this election saying you're the candidate and you have to give up all your free time and even the time you don't really have uh, to campaign for a year, a year and a half, etc. So I think that there's a there's a tricky balance there between having enough time, I guess, to really pick the right people for, you know, every single seat, but also making sure that you're not expecting the people who then do get picked, that, you know, that they just have to basically be full-time candidates for a year and a half of their lives, which a lot of people could not. I I mean, I, I accept all of that completely. And yet there is a difference between reaching for that and not reaching for that. And and I don't yes, think all parties are <laughs> reaching for that. Uh, um, no, so, but, but there's also, like, as Marie said, you know, it's only when there's kind of scrutiny about, well, hang on a minute, well, I, I'm, I sit here, I got selected on all women's shortlist. And when I say that, people go, oh, and you're like, did you meet the women I had to beat to be selected? They were incredible. <laughs> because all women's shortlists are about recognising it wasn't that there weren't brilliant women out there and me who would want to stand. It's that the people doing the selecting had a particular vision of what a politician looks like. And because we don't, you know, they, they're safe. They you treat the public like children, you get toddlers being involved in things. So if we are so dismissive about the role that we want people to play, most people in most political parties have, you know, a passion for their local community, a, a, a thing they want to get done. They, you know, they're, they're not bad people. They might be a bit nerdy, probably don't want to go down the pub with them. I genuinely find for people, it's like going down the pub with your head teacher. They don't really mm. want to go with you for very long. Like one non-alcoholic sells the drink and then would you go home? But actually they're decent people, but our processes, our structures, and frankly, the way our politics works mitigates against people being the best themselves. It's and the- that is that is a challenge for all of us. Because I say, if you all stand back and go, well, political parties need to sort it out, you know, it's like it's like the England football team. At some point, everyone's got to get involved. <laughs> yes, but but okay. So on that, there are over a dozen MPs who've been suspended from their party over bullying and harassment. And I guess my question is: Is it that the House of Commons just attracts the wrong person right now, or that it actively foments the worst traits in formerly decent people? 
So I do think this is a really good and important question. It's something I've been doing some work on because, frankly, I think there are more people. And also, it's not just the MPs, it's the offices they run. You've got to remember, every single MP is an individual employer. So actually, again, in any other workplace, you'd have a HR function. If there were concerns about someone's style of management, there'd probably be an earlier intervention. Um, If you were feeling vulnerable, I mean, people talk about the bars in Parliament. I'm more concerned about what's going on in the offices Mm. and people behaving in in, and behaving. I don't know, if they're doing in the corridors, somebody might walk past. What I'm worried about is young vulnerable staff mm. and senior officials abusing their positions and abusing their the sense of power. I mean, you know, if I had a quid for every time someone had applied for a job with me, writing the word strategy in it and thinking very clearly because they've watched the West Wing, what we're going to do is walk at speed through those corridors, handing me bits <laughs> of paper, rather than sitting in Walthamstow going, what on earth are we going to do about our tower locally, guys? You know, um, it, It's like the reality and our perception of it mixed in with this sense that it is corrupt and that, that there is somehow huge amounts of money swilling around and power, you know, what we're not dealing with is any other normal workplace. So it's a good question about whether that is attracting a type of person or whether actually because there isn't that kind of normality about it's not actually normal to be drinking till... I mean, this is going to make me really important with my colleagues, but, you know, when I the day I came back from my... Um, to, to came back with my son and I, we had a vote at two in the morning. So I was sat in the tea room with a six-month-old baby that... I was feeding and I was, you know, everyone else was in the bars and I was thinking there's something about this as a place and a way of making Mm, mm. legislation that in any other workplace people would say, not sure that's the right way to do it, guys. And it's not actually about If you can't drive, you can't make laws. (laughs) Yeah. It seems quite a basic basic bar. There is something about, you know, people sticking their head above the parapet and saying, actually, is this... And then people being like, don't complain, don't make a fuss because, you know, be loyal, be tribal. That means we've all got into this mess. And breaking that isn't about any one person or any one political party. It's about everybody kind of saying, this is a bit weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Marie, might changing the building change the atmospherics? And I mean that in all sincerity. I don't mean it as a silly question. Is there something about the dusty, musty, sort of imperial, adversarial across the aisle setup in the Palace of Westminster that is just not conducive to good behaviour? Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, and I'm sure I've quoted that before on this podcast because I've quoted it everywhere, but quite famously, so after parts of the um, building were destroyed uh, during the Second World War, there was a big debate over how to rebuild the Houses of Parliament and Churchill said, we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us. Um, In favour, obviously, of rebuilding it exactly as it was. Um, so, So obviously, you know, I think building the buildings we live in and work in have a massive influence on how we behave. Um, And and I do find it really telling, actually, when you look at the MPs who do not want Parliament to be decanted uh, so the building can be redone, Uh, because they're they're always, you know, you're kind of Jacob Rees-Mogg's and your people who are clearly, um, you know, let's say that on the more reactionary end of politics, so that they even they can presumably sense that the culture would change quite quickly if um, MPs were to change buildings. So, no, no, I, I, I do think it would be absolutely worth doing. And even if you look at Port Gullis House, for example, which um, which is quite a fun fact. So when it was built, it was originally nearly just meant, I think it was just meant to be a building for staffers to occasionally have a cup of tea and that was that. And it's now the absolute sort of like beating heart of like the social side of parliament. So it's changed massively. So clearly as well, if you build it, they will come. I think a lot of the people who work um, on in the palace are desperate for a space that is more modern and just more like a normal workplace. So yes, no, I, I do think that'd be positive, but... 
you know, will, will Labour do it? Will Labour make everyone move uh, so the palace can be restored? I'm not sure. I feel like, you know, their, their entry is quite full as it is. Uh, but yeah, maybe for the third term. Matt, <laughs> Ipsa just announced that it is doubling the severance pay for MPs from two months to four months and applying, applying it to all MPs stepping down rather than just those who lose an election. What do you make of that? <laughs> Uh, I mean, this the is one timing of things, is quite. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a massively strong opinion on this. I sort of feel like, as, as Stella said, it's obviously a very strange job. There's all the office staff who have to be dealt with, and that's part of what that payment is about: is making sure people get, um, you know, payments to be able to go off and do other jobs and things. Um, I, yeah, I can't get wound up about that. I feel like if, if they change this suddenly, like a year, I'd be like, well, that's a bit much. Mm. But I feel like two months to four months, I, I'm not too unhappy about that. Yeah. Um, Stella, uh, one final question for you. Um, yes, I am going to stand again. <laughs> I, I, I am wondering what. No. One of the few things on your register is a charity's donation for two tickets to see Beyonce back yes! in June. Yes! What shady backroom deal I be in my did you do with Ms Knowles to I get those tickets? But I got to see tickets? Beyonce! <laughs> <laughs> show <laughs> and I knew some and the best thing about the gig is that she had a teleprompter I mean if Beyonce <laughs> can have a teleprompter there's hope for us all amazing uh, in what sort of debates do you think you might have to declare that when you, when you stand <laughs> up <laughs> whether, whether I am basically channeling Steve Buscemi and going how do fellow kids like come on it's, so it, it, it was uh, working with the Outward Bound Trust who I do quite a lot of stuff on youth engagement youth outreach and they asked me if I'd like to come I mean if someone's going to offer you tickets to see Beyonce quite. at Tottenham Hospital like <laughs> if you're going to say no you really ought to just leave public life um, but it was an incredible gig um, and and, and and you know, do I want to quote like the the the, the song about um, cuff it? That's what, that was the worst thing about the gig. Is I found myself asking some of the young people with me to because I yeah I thought cuff it meant something completely different and much ruder. <laughs> so having an eighteen year old judge me for what I thought it like that was also an abiding memory of the evening. But it was glorious, absolutely glorious. Now, in the last few days, it has been confirmed that post-Brexit trade checks for imports have been delayed for a fifth time, making this the third full year during which UK exporters are subject to full rigour, while EU exporters are handed a relative advantage. Undeterred, um, hardcore Brexiteers have the European Court of Human Rights in their sights next, presumably conceding that take back control of our borders came with a big old asterisk. Um, Keir Starmer has been praised in some quarters for sidestepping that landmine and pilloried in others for failing to represent what is now a sizable majority. A YouGov poll last month returned a 64 to 36 margin in favour of rejoining the EU. By persisting with make Brexit work, is Labour in danger of falling out of step with public opinion? Or is it a recognition that repairing a relationship with the EU is a multi-term project? A welcome break from precisely the tick here if you want to be a superpower again mindset that actually brought us Brexit. Stella, there is a tension at play here. There are economic gains from a closer and smoother relationship. But the last thing Labour wants 
to do is reignite the Brexit divisions and fight the next election on the on the uh, basis of Brexit. So how can Labour just bring down the temperature so of the debate? I, I sit here for my sins. I am the chair of the Labour Movement for Europe. Um, which yeah, maybe feels like a bit of a lonely pursuit at some <laughs> point. But actually, we're massively growing as an organisation because a lot of people have recognised that what happens with Europe, what happens next, is absolutely crucial to repairing what happens in this country, both economically, um, in terms of security, and in terms of some of those longer-term things like energy policy. You can't do it on your own. Actually, what Brexit sold us was this sense of isolationism. So for me to sit here and say to you, that is not about rejoining the EU, might seem counterintuitive, mm. but let me give you two good reasons for that. I mean, the, the absolute priority for me is you can't make Brexit work. The only thing you can do is repair the problems it's creating yeah. and the speed at which you do that. If you were to try to do that by rejoining, like I talked to colleagues from the Ukraine and they're on a fast track to join. That is a seven to 10 year process. The honest truth is that we do not have seven to 10 years to deal with the problems that Brexit has created. Yeah. Businesses in my constituency come to me with chunks of paper going, this is what I have to do to be able to export at all. And, you know, it is driving jobs. It's not It's not been a big bang, but businesses are relocating. People will often say, somebody with an EU passport got the job, I didn't. There is a worry to me that if we don't try and solve some of those problems as quickly as possible, if, you know, if it happens in 10 years' time, if there was, you know... I mean, I want to win the next election. I really hope we can. If we won the one after that, amazing. But if you leave it that long, it's like it won't make any difference yeah. anyway because those businesses, those jobs, those sectors will just have gone. So the priority for me is what can you do urgently now? There's a second issue for me, which is I look at Scotland, right? Scotland has some of the worst health and education results. You wouldn't know it because all people are talking about is whether or not to have another indie referendum. And I think what, when you're seeing in the polls, like absolutely the British public are kind of going, this Brexit isn't, isn't working out well, is it? It's causing problems. I can see my kids sitting in a coach at the border. I can see that things are more expensive here than they were. I can see all the roaming charges, pet passports, all the things that came from breaking up that relationship. Um, but do they want to go back to 2016 up to 2019, all the division that came from a country that's still quite divided about what to do next? And my worry is that I wouldn't want us to be Scotland, where actually that ruthless focus on all the things that are going wrong gets destroyed by the Jacob Rees-Mogg's. And I mean, Bill Cash is actually standing down, so he will never have to yeah. deal with the consequences of all of this. But those people will keep it going. You know, even if, when even Nigel Farage says Brexit isn't working, that should tell you that there's a big problem to deal with. So the question is, what can you do now? None of that precludes building a really close relationship about whatever might happen in the future. But for me, the urgency is every single British business who's going, can I sit out the next 18 months or do I need to try and think about sitting out the next 10 years? That is a non-starter. I mean, my my only gentle pushback, especially when it comes to nationalism, because mm. we don't have someone here from that movement to speak on it, is would be that their suggestion would be that independence would go a long way to um, fixing a lot of the problems they have, whether you agree or disagree, that is the position, politically speaking, because, that, because that a lot up, of the problems with up health those, and... The, ripping up all of those relationships, like, I mean, in the way that we have done with Brexit, that's proved to be such a good way to support your country and your economy. No, the truth is that SNP politicians have spent decades trying to blame Westminster for powers that they have and using the idea of a referendum as a great, you know, people call about the, 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 the throw 
throwing the dead cat on the, the table, the thing that's so shocking that you get distracted by that. None of that, for me, precludes challenging within my own political movement and within the wider country the idea that this just is what it is and Brexit has happened and there is nothing we can do about all these challenges. Because every single week, I mean, it's laughable. It's laughable that the government is trying to... Say, what's really important about the decision they've made today about the import size is they're basically admitting that if they did it, it would increase inflation. And that's the first time the government mm. has actually admitted, you know, we've got many challenges I, I in this saw country. That. I saw that. <laughs> like, I, I was agog at that announcement which had a Treasury officials saying, well, we can't do it right now because the economy is yeah. basically suffering and we have high inflation. It's like, hmm, what are you what saying you here? And it's like, <laughs> absolutely, they, you know, you can point to the pandemic and you can point to Putin and the energy crisis. Brexit is the only homegrown one of those challenges mm. that is holding our economy below the line. And so it's the one that we could do something about. So my priority is what are the things we could do? So things like, I mean, again, if you've got insomnia, go and look up the Pan-European Mediterranean Convention, because that would start to help deal with some of the paperwork that businesses are facing. We're having to subsidise lots of big industries to try and get them to stay in the UK. That is a huge amount of money mm. that actually sorting out the just-in-time supply chains would be another way of getting them to stay in the UK. You know, the Labour Party has committed to getting the fastest growth in the G7. Now, look, you can do that outside of our relationship with Europe, but you can also tie your shoelaces without using your hands. It's just if you use your hands, it's also a mm. lot easier to do. So we have to confront the idea there is nothing to be done, but we have to do what we can as quickly as possible because to do otherwise is just to waste time. Matt, is the aim here, and I'll try not to look at Stella while I um, ask this question, for a big slice of pro-EU voters to actually disbelieve what Starmer says on the issue and trust that once in power, he will be a bit more pro-European than, than declared. Given what we talked about in the first segment, doesn't that get us closer to where we want to be but actually damage trust? Uh, yes, I think it does. I think uh, in this case and quite a lot of the time, it does feel like people on the left and centre-left are basically being taken for granted on this. There's a sense in which, well, they'll vote for us whatever we do. Mm. So we have to appeal to this small slice of the electorate who really matter for annoying electoral reasons. And in a way, I don't know what's worse, whether they mean it because they've decided that Brexit is a fact, we ha there's nothing we can do about it and we can't, we can't talk about it, or that they don't mean it, but then, but they're pretending not to me. I, I don't know. I find, I, I'm not sure which which I find more annoying as a as yes, a, as a yes, prospect. Yes, yes, um, yes. Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And and like, because I, I, you know, I want to I want to vote positively for a for a party who sees that Brexit was a mistake and is trying to deal with it, rather than sort of negatively against the other party who thinks it was great. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. and, and I don't. I, I I would like to vote for Labour, feeling like yeah, people like Stella have the key voice where I'm worried that it's more people going, but let's just let's not talk about that at all. Yeah. And that's uh, and and by doing that, they're sort of pressing the the issue further and further away from being ever talked about. And that's a shame. Marie, in meanwhile, there's a demographic that enters the voting franchise every year who will increasingly not have experienced as adults things like freedom of movement or Erasmus. Do people who advocate a more step-by-step -step approach risk losing, like the big picture argument, 
Is there space actually for a rejoined movement in the firmament of lobbying, not necessarily that advocates Labour should take that position, but that is making a positive argument for membership of the EU? Oh, very possibly, I think, and uh, with the emphasis there very much being on and not telling Labour to embrace it, because I think the problem is, like, and you're right, there's been already a bit of a generational change, but there's sadly not really been a generational change on Fleet Street quite yet. So I think all the nutters uh, who ran the papers in 2016 still do for the most part. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you could probably say the same about quite a lot of people in Westminster. So I think all the people who feel exceptionally strongly about Brexit are still in important roles in the press and uh, in Parliament. So I think that you could not, especially as a political party at the moment, I think, make you know, start making that case without alarm bells kind of ringing everywhere slightly hysterically. But I think, you know, a, a movement that's not necessarily politically attached to a single party could probably, yeah, as you said, kind of start quietly and slowly now, just like in a, in a little corner, uh, and then sort of see what happens over the next years and I'm sad to say probably decades as well. Because that's sort of what UKIP did in in many ways. That was the, the success of their strategies that when it came to Brexit, their arguments were well rehearsed. They had been making them for a very long time while the pro-Remain side found itself suddenly have to sell something that actually it had spent quite a lot of time itself blaming for convenient yeah. things so that I'm, I'm weren't going its way. Go on. I'm just really amusing myself now trying to think of a sort of like, you know, a, a Remain person banging in the corner by themselves, <laughs> calling themselves Fidel Narage. <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be Nigel Farage if there was money in it. <laughs> but I would, so I would caution against having the same arguments of 2016 and 2019 in the same way. So I'm not a fan of the privatisation of lots of industries in the 1980s, uh, and we're seeing the issues now with water. But actually, the idea that nationalisation is... Uh, I, I don't agree with that either. And when you start having that argument, you get stuck in the kind of... 90. For me, the answer is mutualisation, which, again, is something people haven't really been talking about. If you want to get people engaged, you need to talk about what is happening in 2023, 2024, what could happen when we have to renegotiate our relationship with Europe that's required in 20. 526. So there's a moment there because actually you can talk to people about what is happening now. And again, like the what some of the biggest myths that the Brexiteers have done is to tell people that it's not it's either all in or all out. Like Europe is a very different beast. Europe is offering all sorts of different relationships to different countries, some which are fast tracked on the inside. Some, so there's all sorts of possibilities. And frankly, what happened with Northern Ireland shows if you are grown up about it, you can get something done. And there's also something where I think people in the UK just have to have a bit of humility. Like We are like that really terrible man your aunt married 20 years ago for the Europeans. <laughs> and you've put up with him at Christmas every year. And finally, she divorced him. <laughs> You're not going to get like, oh, Fred, we haven't seen you come in. No, don't forget. Forget about it. Like there is something to do. And, and it's really important. Like a lot of my colleagues, I'm, I'm on the back benches, right? My front bench colleagues are going and spending a lot of time just saying, hi, we're not, we're, we're not Liz Truss, <laughs> we're not Quasi Quartec, like we do value this relationship. Mm. 
The question is, what do you want them to do next? What I'm saying is what we need to do is make sure that politicians see this as a priority. And the honest truth right now is that the polls aren't telling people that Brexit and dealing with Europe is a priority. And yet all the things that people worry about, cost of living crisis, you know, of course, it's making food more expensive because it is harder to get food in and out of the country. Energy crisis, of course, it's making, you know, solving the energy crisis harder because cooperating with our next door neighbours is really important when it comes to things like renewable energy in the sea. All the things that people say they care about, there is an angle here about what a better relationship with Europe would look like. But it needs to be rooted in what can we do in the next 18 months? Because actually the pressures that people are under mean that is just too important. And, you know, shamelessly, I'm going to say, if you're somebody who cares about that, again, don't stand back and leave it to other people. Like I joke about it being a lonely Mm, role, mm. being one of the few people prepared to talk about this and the dullness of talking about European treaties. And honestly, that's why nobody wants to go down the pub with me. But actually, we all need to be talking about what can be done in 2023, 24. Because if you have the argument about rejoin, you take people back to that headspace of 2016 and Dominic Cummings and 20. And none of us want to go there, do we? Yeah, it feels to me that part of the problem with this always is the use of the word Brexit, weirdly, because that was a specific moment in time Mm. where we had a vote in or out and we voted out. And I regret that. But, you know, as many of us do. But it's like, I think you're absolutely right. It always feels to me that just keeping using the word Brexit keeps situating that this discussion back in 2016. Whereas, in fact, what we should be talking about is how do we go forward from this place we are currently in and how do we have better relationships with people in Europe and how does uh, how do we recreate something a little bit like the single market as as well as we can without all the other issues involved in that but as soon as you put the word brexit into that conversation you immediately shift everyone back to 2016 and say where you remain where you leave and i think that's that's in a way maybe that's, that's... It's like we all got to stop talking about like we've left there is no remain yeah. leave anymore and that also matters the point about independence referendums matters as well to europe because europe are not going to expend time and effort and energy on what might a different relationship like like with the uk if we look like we can't make our mind up you know they've got other things to deal with too so there is a there's a there's a there's a real politique here that means that everyone's sitting around trying to have the argument from 2016 on all sides. And so what could be achieved in 2023, which might give some hope about that 2025 negotiation? And that's the challenge for people like me is trying to hold my own party to mm. actually mm-hmm. the businesses in your con- constituency who need somebody to help them now need you to stop talking about six, seven years ago and start talking about the next 10 years. Yeah. Some, someone says that Brexit, the issues around Brexit need to make it back into page six and seven of the newspaper rather than on the front page. And then they, when they become technical issues, they're much easier to solve yeah, than when they're away big from, issues of principle yeah, see, on again, which, on which oh, hill we will I die. I don't know. Like, again, I just, I, I, you know... Maybe it's getting older, but I have such a low tolerance for the indulgence of waiting around for the Mm. press to to catch up with things. Like, just start talking now to people about, well, what could we do about, you know, pet passports? Did you you go on holiday this year? How long did you have to queue? Um, You know, did you have to get your phone sorted so you could have EU roaming charges? Lots and lots of kids this year are not going to get to go on school trips. Because the reason why they were all sat in the coaches is because you have to check every single one has the right passport. Now, there's an EU exemption, but if your children look like you're not from the EU, and let's be honest about what kind of profiling might be happening at borders, then your coach is going to get stopped. So if you're a school, 
in a community in this country thinking, well, actually, are we going to do the school trip to... Be- we all did it as a kid. We all went to Belgium to look at the war graves and it was a big emotional moment. Like, that isn't going to happen anymore. Those kids aren't going to get that history lesson because of the bureaucracy, because of the processing. It's on us as politicians to sort that out. We could have a visa system that sorted that out, but we need our constituents not to be sitting around waiting till it's on the front page of The Sun or the front page of The Guardian and actually get on and have that conversation. Don't wait for other people to sort this mess out because if you wait too long, there's no point anyway. We're done for. Mm. Marie, to just leave this on a, on a positive note, do you think that actually simply the act of a change of government to a friendlier one, I guess, to the EU and to one that is slightly more professional, um, it has the capacity That's to actually... That's a low bar, isn't it? Really? Well, that is really quite a low... This where we are then, I mean, isn't it? Because, you know, Suella I mean, has just discovered that maybe crime should be investigated, yeah, yeah, especially yeah, from secretary. So it's a quite, low bar quite. you're setting. It, yes, but, but this is where we are, right? Um, so what I, what I was going to ask is, does that have the capacity actually to make a lot of the problems go away simply as a matter of policy rather than butting heads on the rules, simply by saying, look, we'll quietly start uh, realigning our, uh, let's say, data protection legislation with yours without making a massive song and dance about it. And do you see what I mean? Sort of pragmatic, practical solutions to things that are complicated when you elevate them to a big block negotiation level? I know, I do think so. And I think you can, to be fair to him, I think Rishi Sunak has already travelled a bit in that direction. So when you see, especially looking at the kind of Franco-British relationship, which has not necessarily been very easy over the past sort of, you know, five, six, seven years, um, especially under Boris and Truss. And I think, you know, even just someone coming and saying, hello, you know, I'm not an enemy here, we can talk. And you saw that that relationship, that bilateral relationship already started healing quite quickly. And I think the French uh, started engaging in very good faith as well, because they could see that they were being engaged with uh, in good faith. So yes, no, absolutely. I do think the one thing that I do think Brussels is, as Stella was saying earlier, is kind of exhausted by, you know, Britain. And I remember even in kind of 2017, going to Brussels and talking to people and them saying, you know, why, why are we still talking about Brexit? Why can't we move on? Uh, so you can imagine how they felt by 2019. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think we, we, we may need to go gently in anything we do. But no, I absolutely agree that I think just showing good faith and saying we're not going to brief every single thing to the papers, we're going to stop briefing stories that assume that people in Europe cannot speak English or yeah. buy British newspapers. <laughs> you know, e- even the, the small stuff like that, I think, can probably go quite a long way towards kind of repairing that relationship. But I would, and I say this again, I'm chair of the Labour Movement for Europe, I would say nothing is set in stone. So frankly, if you do want to see the Labour Movement picking this up, you know, I'm not doing my duty if I don't say come and you know contact me, get involved in what we're doing, because there is a risk. Don't forget, Europe is tilting rightwards. Actually, it's not just Georgia Maloney in Italy. There's a very strong chance that Macron, I mean, Macron is probably out, and you know we could see Le Pen coming in. The AFD is doing very well in Germany. You look at some of the the the, the Nordic countries and what's happening there. Like, actually, Europe needs a strong progressive voice, and that could be the UK, but mm. only if that progressive voice is actually saying not, as Matt said, you know, oh, well, well, we'll deal with this after the election, but no, this is something we need to make a priority of. Rishi Sunak put builders, he put plumbers on the visa shortage list. That is a fundamental admission that the plans they had about Brexit and all the issues about immigration and homegrown talent are just failing. But it isn't enough, and I 
say this as, as, as a passionate Labour politician, it isn't enough for us to just be not the Conservatives. We also want to set out what that relation, partly because we also need to be clear with people that we're not doing rejoin. And actually in that space where people aren't talking about this, it's easy for the far right to say this is a, a massive anti-democratic project, unless you are clear about what you're going to do. So again, you know, I, I make an appeal to people, it could get worse. You, know, you, think, you think this is about it, it could get worse but it also can get better. Because frankly, if it can't get better, what are any of us doing? We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What displacement activity have panellists been using to rest their mind ahead of their oncoming maelstrom that is a return to parliament and conference season? Matt. Uh, well, my escape route is a TV show, which is on Now TV at the moment. It's called Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. And it's about um, the LA Lakers, the basketball team in the 80s, uh, and how they sort of changed basketball from being quite well known, quite popular to this huge sort of razzmatazz mm, mm. Um, sort of popular sport that took over um, America. And it's 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 kind of the time of Magic Johnson. Space uh, jam time. Isn't yeah, it? well, it's it's before Michael Jordan and, and that. And, and the thing is, the reason I love it is because it's really well made. It's really fun. It's got some great actors in it. John C. Riley, Adrian Brody, Jason Segal, um, playing all these um, kind of basketball coaches and people, people who I'm sure Americans know, but it, it felt to me a bit like watching um, The Last Dance, which I did during COVID, which I think a lot of us did, uh, which is all about Michael Jordan, which I found fascinating, even though I don't really know anything about basketball. And I've got yeah, a similar yeah. thing with this where I find it really interesting. And I'm sure that if you're watching it as an American, you know you know what the story is. And so you kind of watch it in a different way. But I'm just going, oh, this is really fun. I didn't know any of this. It's great. I wonder if there's a, an enclave of Americans watching obscure films about Test cricket. I'm sure. Somewhere. <laughs> uh, how about you, Marie? Well, so I was quite conscious uh, recently of the fact that I always go for quite highbrow things where I'm like, oh, yes, I read this Hungarian novel and stuff. And then I was like, this is not who I mean, this is a part of who I am, don't get me wrong, but it's not who I am entirely. Um, so, yeah, to, to, to readjust, I am going to recommend uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie because it is so fun. So, I literally just went to see it because there's nothing else I could think of in the cinema. I just had nothing to do with my Sunday afternoon, so I went. And it's genuinely just so fun. Laugh out loud funny. Like, quite emotional. I nearly cried as well, but that's maybe because I had a hangover. Um, but no, <laughs> genuinely just, uh, like, so much fun. And also, crucially, an hour and a half. Like, it's not one of those superhero movies that stretches for two hours and 45 minutes. It's just 90 minutes of good, clean fun. And, yeah, really recommend it. Marvellous. How about you, Stella? I, I, I knew you're going to, because that's basically asking, do I have a life? <laughs> like, and I, 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 you know, I've got two toddlers. Of course I don't have a life. My life revolves around the mechanisms of Bluey and, you know, um, whether or not the kids have had anything to eat and what we're going to do with them over the summer period. So I'd love to tell you that I'd spent the summer, I don't know, reading... The, I don't even know what the latest books <laughs> are. The most I can tell you is that I've probably maxed out all the Netflix, like, Spanish late-night trashy films because because I don't get to have a life anymore. Because there's two... I love them dearly, but seriously, it is a buzzkill. Um, you know, I, I, I've watched a lot of trash telly. And trash telly is my, I mean, is my, my, my jam or, or a pub quiz. Although the other night... 
my partner and I had, we did this, you know, you flip a coin, who gets to go? And one of you has to look after the kids. I had to look after the kids. He went and did a pub quiz. And not only were the questions about Ferris Bueller, Jason Statham and The Cure, but also they didn't win by half a point. And I swear to God, if I had been there... <laughs> You'd have done it. So, yeah, I, I need an escape route. <laughs> but Trash I also need telly. probably not to do pub quizzes in public because it probably is a bit bad if you see your MP Listen, a little bit overcompensative Trashy telly, late night Spanish movies. No, 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 not, but not like... Not like art movies. No, no, I want Who to be really it? honest Who about this. I'm, about talking, I'm talking about the trashy, like, rom-coms on that. Because I've watched everything else. I can't bring myself to look at Prime Video. So uh, I, there's nothing wrong with trashy TV, as I said. And, and my um, escape route, uh, having now uh, mainlined all of the mentalist, uh, a sort of procedural that we discussed last time, Marie, um, I'm now, I've now moved to The Closer. With oh, yeah. Kyra Sedgwick, another sort of kooky detective. Uh, she's a sort of sassy southern belle uh, in California uh, whose speciality is getting confessions out of people, tricksing them into saying, oops, I did it. Oh, no, damn it. Um, and it's wonderful and it's popcorny. And uh, uh, there's a whole, I'm watching a whole storyline at the moment where she has basically early onset menopause and just the the mix of the sort of gritty murders gang shootings procedural and this this uh, deputy chief trying to investigate him who, who gets hot flashes and and uh, it, it's just a, a brilliant brilliant um, way to pass the time so that's my recommendation and that's the end of the Tuesday edition of oh God what now thank you Matt thank you Marie thank you and Stella thank you Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Alex Andreu with Matt Green and Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? It's a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.